You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode five. Today, we're asking the question, can increasing uncertainty improve safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But before we get to today's question, for those of our listeners that are still having their withdrawals about disaster casts and if they're having it made worse by hearing Drew on, on another podcast with me, I've got some good and some bad news. The good news is that I think we're going to mention at least four or five disasters to frame today's question. But the bad news is, is that at the moment, I'm probably going to be the one talking about them. So, but before we get to that, Drew, what's today's question? Uh, the question for today, David, is can increasing uncertainty improve safety? Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I think that's a pretty cool question just standing on its own. We've got a bit of an assumption in safety. Whether we think about this consciously or not, most of our safety practices are really aimed at taking uncertainty and bringing it under control. They're trying to reduce uncertainty. Every time we assess risk, we're trying to take it from this vague notion into something that we've either quantitatively or semi-quantitatively got a handle on. We're putting things into categories we're taking variable behavior and we're trying to put it into rules, procedures, and checklists. So all of this is about reducing uncertainty. And the idea being that a certain world is a safer world. And the paper we're looking at today challenges that. It tries to make the exact opposite argument, trying to say that sometimes increasing uncertainty can improve safety. So that's the question that we'd like to answer. So that's a big question for today, Drew, and um, I'm excited that we're tackling a question uh, such as this. And right off the bat, we, we know that this is a difficult conversation for, for your organisation, and it's probably even a difficult thought process for some of our listeners. At least when I first read the paper, it, was, it challenged what I hadn't uh, really thought about too much in my career. It was just the way that we did safety, which was to try to reduce the uncertainty to do with, with work. So you might be asking, how could uncertainty possibly be good for safety? But that's what we're going to try to talk through with this paper. The paper we've chosen for today is titled Promoting Safety by Increasing Uncertainty, Implications for Risk Management. The author is Gudella Grote. Uh, she's a professor at uh, ETH Zurich, which is a university in Switzerland. She's very active in the safety science and resilience engineering communities. However, this paper is more of what we'd call a theory paper. And so, Drew, do you want to Give us your thoughts on the role of theory papers in the safety science literature. Sure. I have to admit, I'm feeling a little bit guilty because when we set up the podcast, our thought was we're going to take research evidence and share it. And we're only up to episode five and already we've got this paper that we both looked at and thought, hey, we've got to talk about this on the podcast. And then we both looked at it and we realised, hold on, this paper doesn't actually have any new data or evidence of its own. And you get this a lot in safety. So I thought the first thing I might do is just sort of mention, how do you tell when you're reading a theory paper and when you're reading an evidence paper? 
And there are sort of two clues we look for. One of them is in the abstract of the paper. That's the 250 words typically that comes at the start. And you look for keywords like argument. And that's definitely in this paper. It says this paper makes the argument. That's an immediate clue that this is going to be the author giving us theory rather than giving us evidence. And so you get those suspicions from the abstract. The next thing you do is go and look to see if the paper has a method section. Pretty much any paper that has a method section is based at least off some sort of collection and analysis of data. If it doesn't have a method section, then it's a theory paper. Now, that, even within that, there can be quite a range of different things. Just because something's a theory doesn't mean that it's not evidence-based, doesn't mean that it's wrong. So we need to sort of consider what theory is, is its sense-making. It's taking the data that's already out there and it's trying to provide patterns over the top of that data. And if people do it well, it ticks two boxes. The first one is, after we've read the theory, we go back and we're seeing the data in a new light. So it's explaining what we've already seen, but explaining it in a way that makes us have new insights and new ideas. And the test of really good theory is whether it gives us new questions. If immediately after reading the theory, we want to go out and collect more data because we've got new and better questions, then theory's done its job well. So without theory, we don't tend to turn data into usable things and our questions never get any better. Uh, but I do think that in safety science particularly, we've got a bit of an overburden of theory. We've got too much theory and once that gets to that point, it's not really explaining or interpreting the data. It becomes people just giving us their opinions. In this particular case, I do think that this is a paper which transforms the way we think a couple of activities and it does result in a couple of new, better questions at the end of it. So that's certainly what I found interesting about it, David. How about you? Yeah, exactly, Drew. I think I also look in theory papers for just the, the weight of literature and, and like you said, the way that the author re recollates that literature around certain central arguments where it makes sense and, and particularly when the the literature that they're citing is very well known and, and very credible research studies or very credible authors as well. So um, Cadella Grove did a good job of referencing um, quite extensively when she was making her argument. Yeah, just on that, there are two types of referencing as well. And one thing that you worry about is where theory is just referencing other theory. So your evidence that this is a good idea is that you're riffing off someone else who has thought similar ideas and you go down the rabbit hole and you never actually get to data. In this particular one, actually, what Grote's doing is it's almost like a literature review of empirical studies. So she's saying, you know, we've got all of this information out there. Some of it's from field work, some of it's from experiments. How can we put this together in order to think about it? So she's not just rehashing other people's theory work. Yeah, so the, the introduction of this paper goes straight into talking about this question about uncertainty and safety um, by reflecting on some major accidents. So I think Drew mentioned in uh, episode zero that we might use accidents as framing devices. So, so here goes. The paper quoted that the 2012 official report into the Fukushima disaster in Japan, the Fukushima government investigation claimed Japanese culture as the root cause of the nuclear disaster. And they, they specified that the ingrained conventions of the Japanese culture, so their reflexive obedience, their reluctance to question authority, their devotion to sticking with the program, their groupism, their insularity, you know, and these are all words that the Japanese government used. These were not outsiders who, who labeled the Japanese as having these, um, these cultural traits. 
but they believe that these traits have led to the many faulty decisions before, during, and after the Fukushima catastrophe. The, the introduction then goes on to talk about the, the NASA incidents, um, Challenger and Columbia, and the now infamous O-rings and foam strikes. So these, these problems with these space shuttles that were known amongst engineering departments and, and known amongst people in the organizations, but that were unable to be surfaced due to rigid processes, quantitative risk acceptance, and going back to the question, this emphasis and focus on certainty such that the organization didn't want to stay in the question, didn't, didn't want to acknowledge uncertainty, definitely didn't want it to hang around. And if something couldn't be proven to be unsafe, then uh, by, by definition, then it, it must be okay and it must be safe. On the positive side, we've, we've seen in 2009 um, disaster avoided through uncertainty and uh, decision latitude in the case of American Airlines 1549 that Captain Sullenberger landed on the Hudson River. So we're seeing in these, in these major incidents and, and near incidents the, how the organisation looks at either trying to eliminate uncertainty in the operation or provide a certain amount of latitude and, and decision-making within uncertainty can lead to, lead to outcomes. Obviously, these incidents have, have many, many causes and contributing factors, but it was, it was quite interesting the way that she framed her argument around these major accidents. Drew? So, David, there's a really interesting phrase that you just used, and I'm not sure whether that's your own or from the paper. This idea of staying in the question, is that yours or? I think we talk about that a little bit in safety. Definitely in the last five or 10 years of my career, it's like if you don't understand the question or you don't understand the problem well enough, then you've got very little chance of coming up with a good solution. So staying in the question and staying in the problem for as long as you need to to make sure you really understand it is um, is a very worthwhile thing to do. But organisations are often very geared around not wanting to have problems that don't have answers. Yeah, thanks for that, because I think that ties in fairly well to Groat's central argument that runs through the paper. Because she's not saying that, you know, we want to always be uncertainty. This is not a diatribe in favour of long-term uncertainty. Really what she's saying is that eventually we want certainty eventually we're going to have to make some sort of decision or we're going to take some sort of action. And that space of possibilities is going to collapse down into a single point of view. But the more space we leave open, the more we've got ability to collect information, to get hold of different points of view, to consider different options. And ultimately, that's going to make us have a better decision or action than if we collapse down into a single option or a single point of view too quickly. So she's not saying, you know, stay uncertain forever. She's saying avoid rushing into uncertainty. And that may take some sort of steps to maintain uncertainty for a while. Yeah, and I think Dave Woods talks about that a lot, that um, organisations need to assume that their initial situation assessments are wrong. They need to assume that their their models of risk aren't going to be uh, be reliable for very long. And being able to understand that everything you think you know is to some extent uncertain actually gives you the opportunity to revise your model of risk and to, re to revise your situation assessment and to, to not discount new information that becomes available in your operation, particularly as our systems become you know, far more complex. So if you'll forgive me using a computer science analogy, just let, let's see how this one works and we can cut it out of the podcast if it fails miserably. There's a well-known problem when we're trying to get machines to learn how to solve problems doing uh, neural networks and artificial algorithms and things like that. Uh, it's this idea of a local minimum, that if you're looking for the lowest point in a landscape and all you do is just rush downhill, then eventually you're going to get to this point where 
going any further requires going uphill again. But that doesn't necessarily mean you've reached the lowest spot. It just means you've reached a relatively stable spot where it looks like you're fairly low. And if only you could sort of add a little bit of randomness into the situation, a bit of willingness to go uphill a little bit, you discover that you're not at the lowest point, you're just in a tiny little dip in the ground. And there's a much better, deeper valley just a few steps away. And so adding that sort of period of uncertainty, period of knowing we haven't yet necessarily found the right answer or the best solution, we're going to wander around a little bit more, can lead to you going from a solution that looks okay to discovering that there are better options. Yeah, Drew, so, so we probably for our listeners had a bit of a uh, theoretical conversation there about uh, complex systems and uncertainty and information and just then computer science, but I think it worked okay. So that's a bit theoretical, but there's some really practical ways that it, this all matters for making good decisions. So tell, tell us about the, the practical ways that this all matters. Okay, so, so one of the most obvious ways in which you have uncertainty is where you have differences of opinion. And so Groat talks a bit about the idea of challenging authority, that when people argue, that's inherently having uncertainty because you've got different voices, multiple opinions, multiple answers. And a space where uncertainty is encouraged where consensus is not doesn't need to be reached quickly, where it's okay to say, no, I disagree, means that we bring out different courses of action and we allow tolerance for the fact that people may make different choices than us, and that those different choices may at times be better choices. And so, yeah, the first way that growth says we need to allow uncertainty is we need to take action that deliberately encourages introduction of contradictory information, introduction of contrary opinions, breaking consensus, not forming consensus. She also suggests that this sort of, there are two big trade-offs that we might want to consider and that uncertainty gives us more space to talk about and negotiate these trade-offs. She talks about stability and flexibility and she also talks about control or accountability. I think she actually talks about them as stability versus flexibility and control versus accountability. For the first one, the trade-off between stability and flexibility is, is on reducing uncertainty through standardization and automation. This is what we see a lot in uh, high-risk industries and particularly um, highly automated industries like aviation and so on, where she referred back to Amalberti's three different types of uh, industries and how that kind of plays through when organizations needing to have stability and flexibility. So on the flexibility side, she said it was really important that organizations develop the capacity to cope with uncertainty. So she said it's very different if you're an aviation company and you've got some more predictability than say you're in a healthcare organization in an operating theater. One situation you can try to manage with stability as much as possible, but another situation such as the operating theater, you it's very hard to manage through stability and you need to teach people to cope with flexibility. So when we get to the practical ideas, like Drew said, this isn't a choice between one or the other. This is a this is a balance. And this is where do you sit in your industry and your organisation? Do you have any thoughts on stability and flexibility, Drew? I guess my immediate thought was a concept they use sometimes in human factors called requisite variety, which says that the number of different circumstances and behaviours your system can exhibit requires a certain amount of variety inside the system. So a system that's got lots of different parts moving inside it that aren't all moving in unison, that aren't all tightly coupled, gives your system more behaviours. That's sort of like the humans are the ultimate flexible system because 
we're so complex inside. You can't just neatly model what we're going to do. We've got so many different options. Sometimes we're in fighting against ourselves inside our own minds. And that's what gives us such a variety of different situations we can cope with and adapt to. And, and that, that's where the trade-off is, is that that also makes us incredibly unreliable as system components. You know, we are not remotely what you'd consider as stable and predictable, but we are very flexible. Yeah, I, I, I do really love um, you know, that, that saying that, that people in our systems, they're high-performance but unreliable components. And it's funny that in many of our systems and even in many of our safety practices, we try to make people like machines and try to make our machines like people rather than trying to position them within the socio-technical system in a way that actually um, maximizes the different capabilities that automation has and the capabilities that humans have. Um, and it's certainly a trade-off that we do make in that the more we try to get humans to become more predictable, the less we are sort of making use of their capacity to deal with uncertainty and to deal with unpredictable situations. Yeah. The second, the second trade-off that Groat talked about was control versus accountability. And here she introduced this uh, discussion about power and power might be something that we talk about in a future, a future podcast. But what she talked about was that often when organizations are trying to trade off between stability and flexibility, they, they transfer accountability for making things happen to less powerful people in the organization that actually can't control the outcome that the organization expects them to control. We also see this show up in the resilience engineering literature when we talk about the authority responsibility double bind. We actually hold people responsible for something, but they just don't have either the social or organizational authority to make it happen. A clear example for our listeners might be where organizations hold the safety professional responsible for either the company's safety culture or the company's safety performance. And in these sorts of systems where you're trying to balance stability and flexibility, it's really important to match that with a understanding of control versus accountability. Who can control what? Are you holding people accountable for the things that they can meaningfully have control over? Yeah, I think there's a definite risk we run that giving people flexibility and then holding them accountable for outcomes they can't control isn't really giving them flexibility. And that's why a lot of organizations end up complaining that, you know, we've, give, we, we've given people autonomy, we've given them the option, why are they just sticking to the formula? We gave them a choice. How come they always make the same choice? And it's because you, you may have given them a choice, but you're going to hold them accountable. And the only safe option is to always do the same thing. Yeah. So, Drew, if we think about practice now, and we're, we're thinking about actually increasing uncertainty in practice. So, if, if one of our listeners is, is sitting there thinking, oh, gee, actually, in my organization, everything we do is about eliminating uncertainty. It's, it's, it's all really prescriptive and, and we... We really quantify everything and, you know, we don't want to even encourage a debate where there might, we might not be doing something right or the right way and our people really don't have a say in, in what happens. How, how would they start? How, how would they start by introducing uncertainty into, into their organisation around safety? Well, I certainly know where I want to start, which is by acknowledging that if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the idea of deliberately increasing uncertainty, then that's really a very reasonable thing to feel. And if you don't feel it, it's certainly a very reasonable thing for other people in your organization to feel. Because certainly in a high-risk setting, when we talk about increasing uncertainty, we are, we are genuinely talking about reducing stability and control. And that is rightly something that people want to be cautious about because they feel a genuine and authentic need for stability and a genuine authentic need to be in control. But there's a lot of research cited in the paper that suggests that Putting too much emphasis on stability control does lead to less optimal safety outcomes. 
So, you know, we, we, there's a choice we're making here is that stability and control may in fact be bad for safety. And we may in fact need to accept some of this more uncomfortable situation, perhaps even more precarious situation, if what we want is the most optimal outcome for safety, particularly in a complex and dynamic system. But yeah, we're still a bit theoretical. So practically, what do we mean? First one is designing flexible rules. So increasing uncertainty by giving people the freedom to make decisions and to take a variety of options rather than specifying one particular course of action. And one practical way you can think about this is to look at the rules and think about three different types and what type of rules you've got currently. So an action rule is what you use when you require stability. A process rule gives you a little bit more flexibility. And then a goal-based rule is sort of the ultimate example of flexibility. Um, David, maybe you could sort of take us through some examples of the sort of three different types of rules and how they give more or less flexibility. I'll give some examples and then I want to tell a story about, about some work that we've done that I think is going to help our listeners to, to understand this practically a little bit more. The first one of an action or a state rule, which is something like do not work at heights without fall arrest equipment. So action state. If, if, if you're going to take the action of working at heights, you must have the state of having fall arrest equipment on. So it's, it, it's very clear. But we all know those situations when to achieve a certain task at heights, that may not be possible and there may need to be other, other um, control measures thought of. But if you've got that rule, then clearly there's no flexibility around that in your organisation. You might have a process rule, which might be something like obtain a permit to work before commencing uh, this type of high-risk activity. That's not going to tell you what actions you need to take or what controls, but it's going to lead you through a process to hopefully design that for the particular context that you're about to face. And then there's sort of like a, a goal-based rule where there's, there's no specific process or, or actions that are prescribed, which might be manage your safety risks as low as reasonably practicable. Um, choose a process to do that. Choose the actions you need to do, but that's the goal that you need to achieve. You know, much of our general obligations in legislation are, are goal-based, ensure a safe system of work, for example. And then organisations put processes and, and action rules in place to try to achieve those, those goals. But I want to tell a quick story, Drew, because I think this, um, this is a good one from around stability and flexibility. Working with a company that used concrete saws, you get a lot of cutting of concrete saws and, and had a very stable workforce and people who've been doing that for 15 years. And there was a newish type of saw that the manufacturer had shown from an engineering point of view was safer in certain applications. It didn't uh, bite as much. It reduced the risk of kickback. It it, from, all, from a side-by-side -side manufacturing, engineering analysis was a safer tool. And the organization struggled because most of the workforce wanted to use the old saws that they'd used for 10 or 15 years. And so they put in a rule that these types of activities all had to use the new saw because it was, quote-unquote, safer. And so we were actually involved in a, in a learning team to try to understand why people weren't following that rule. And it was really interesting because when talking to the group, they were like, no, no, we don't really care what the manufacturers said. We feel much safer with our experience in using this saw. We know exactly how it's going to handle. We know what it can do and what it's capable of doing. And I was really a bit confused and I hadn't kind of experienced that type of confusion in my, in my career, which is, like you said, how do we stay in the question about consensus? There were clearly two differing views and I don't think it's clear which is right or wrong. Is the lesser safe piece of equipment with a whole lot of experience, safer than a more safe piece of equipment for someone with less experience or on that tool. But what we actually did then was we changed that rule to just a flexible so you can use this saw or that saw 
whichever you feel safer and more experienced and capable of using. So we, we just changed it to a process rule that was around selecting a rule. So that's, I suppose, a little bit how you can maybe practically move a little bit away from stability towards flexibility, but hopefully our listeners can see how something like that might actually create an environment where some decision latitude might actually improve the safety of their operation. And I think it's important to emphasise here that we're not talking about making a rule and then giving people flexibility to violate it. We're talking about thinking at the level at which you want to make a rule so that everyone is comfortable and has the right amount of variability whilst complying with the rule. Yeah, and I think, and, and Grody in her paper, she, she actually goes to fairly strong lengths to point out that um, exactly what you said. So it's not about providing leeway about when you follow a rule, when you don't. It's about expanding um, the latitude within a rule or, or the, the framework around a rule. Always, always talking about the education and training and supervision that has to go along with how to apply it. So obviously, if you're changing your your approach to procedures and rules within your organization to provide more context-dependent decision-making latitude, then you need to help people understand how to work within that. Because I think what you said earlier, Drew, people won't necessarily immediately know what the organization expects of them. And then you need that supporting culture that she says built on competence, trust, and fairness. So if you're relying on people to make good decisions, then how do you have the competence and the trust and the fairness in your people that they're going to be able to make those decisions and they're going to be supported in the decisions that they make? So should we move on to the second practical option from the paper? So first one was around rules. Second one is around supporting speaking up. Now, this is something that we talk a heck of a lot about in safety and not always very constructively. I've certainly run into and I'm sure you're the same, David, lots of programs that are supposedly about encouraging speaking up. I think there's actually out there a program, Speak Up for Safety. Uh, you, if you see something, say something, or you, safety is in your hands. And thankfully, that conversation has moved on, I think, from spending lots of time encouraging people to speak up to recognising that the responsibility is on the organisation to provide the right psychological environment for people to speak up. And that you know, requires thinking about things like care and trust and psychological safety. Grote talks about a study that's about why air crews in a commercial European commercial airline are quiet, why they don't speak up. And it's interesting because the study breaks up the different roles that people have and the reasons they give for not speaking up. And it's really interesting the way the reasons shift, whether you're talking about the captain of an aircraft or the first officer or the purser or the flight attendant. You're just looking off the first role here. How many people, how many captains don't speak up because they're worried about their status? Zero. How many flight attendants don't speak up because they're worried about their status? 40%. And then your first officer and person somewhere in the middle. So, you know, obviously the lower status you have, the more likely it is that your lack of power is why you don't speak up. And equally, Drew, I think in that table of results and, and going back to the the methodology for the paper. I like it when theory papers actually publish the data of other studies within the context of their argument. So this was this was um, Grote's paper had pasted the the data from another study directly into into her paper. And how many captains don't speak up because of fear or punishment? Zero. So the captain goes, I'm, I can speak up whenever I want. I'm never going to get punished for speaking up. But 81% of flight attendants won't speak up because of fear of punishment. And this goes back to this control versus accountability. The further down you get in the organization from a power point of view, you know, the more fear and, you know, the more difficulty it is for people to actually do the things that you're asking them to do. 
Mm. Just pull out one other number from that table that I think is interesting is how many captains are concerned about fear of damaging relationships. So this is sort of the flip side of power is that, you know, the less you become concerned with your own status, the more you become concerned about hurting the feelings of others and damaging your relationship with, with your subordinates. And that becomes the important reason not to speak up. Yeah, so we've so so the two practical ways that can introduce uncertainty into your operation is thinking about how you set boundaries around your operations through rules and procedures and how much flexibility you allow within your rules and procedures for for safety. And the other way to to get uncertainty to, I suppose, be considered by your organization is to create more of an environment where people can talk openly and share ideas and, and like we said, stay in a problem, get a diversity of views and and spend more time trying to understand the issues. It's only taken us about five podcasts. And like you said earlier, this is kind of more of a, a theory paper than we thought we'd be talking about. But we asked the question, can increasing uncertainty improve safety? And, and you'll see immediately how this question already starts to overlap with other questions we've asked. You know, for example, in episode two, we asked, why do people break rules? And we talked about some similar things around, around rules there. And then in last week's episode four, we talked about what's the relationship between trust and safety. And now we're starting to talk about speaking up. So you'll see that even though we're talking about one paper or one or two papers or one or two questions each week, you'll, you know, we're going to start to see this big Venn diagram of all of these overlapping questions and overlapping issues, you know, which is why safety you know, becomes so hard for us to make uh, sense of simply within organizations because of all the overlapping questions and issues. And I spoke to someone the other day about whack-a-mole. It's almost like you knock down you know, one mole and then it pops up somewhere else if you don't quite, you know, get it right and get all the considerations of, of what you're doing well understood. So we started this discussion by saying that we were talking about a theory paper because we thought that theory papers can help give you a slightly different point of view and they can help to ask better questions. So something that we'd like to take away from the discussion today is just this idea of recognising that a lot of what we're doing in safety is about managing uncertainty and whether we're deliberate about it or not. If you start to look at that, each of the safety activities, you what is this activity there to reduce uncertainty or increase uncertainty? I think that gives you a slightly different way of looking at the world. And it helps us then make you know, strategic decisions. When do we genuinely want to reduce uncertainty? Because we think that that reduction will be good for safety. And when do we want to deliberately encourage uncertainty? Because that will help us in the long term make better decisions. And so being a bit more conscious of that, a bit more strategic about that, we think is both a theoretical and a practical takeaway. And I think particularly if you're in an organisation or an, or an industry that um, when you sit back and critically reflect is, is your only effort, is your, are all your efforts in safety only focused on reducing uncertainty? And will that limit your organisation's ability to cope with the residual uncertainty that they face? And I suppose at the moment we're seeing what's playing out with the MCAS system on the Boeing 737 MAX 8s. And all the effort that's gone into automation and sensors and software, you know, to to control that aircraft left a couple of pilots with an, you know, somewhat inability to actually cope with the the uncertainty that they face when the plane started behaving the way that they did. So we need to think about in our industries and I suppose within our safety toolkit about, about uncertainty, like in the way that Drew said, and finding a way to make sure that we're conscious of whether our people can actually manage the situations that they face in front of them. So our question this week was, can increasing uncertainty improve safety? And I think overall there, our answer is a definite yes. And particularly recognising that safety is about both managing certainty and about managing uncertainty definitely can improve the way that we think about safety. So that's it for this week. 
We hope you found the episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.